Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Correlation. Nothing personal. Word of the day. It is Monday, 12 12 22. The word of the day is correlation because this weekend I assume that if you are a baseball fan, you have given up. It's over. The New York Mets are going to win the World Series, guaranteed in 2023. You may have seen this weekend that there was yet another signing by Steve Cohn. He signed the Japanese free agent pitcher Senga gave him 75 million bucks. Like Oprah Winfrey giving cars is what Stephen Cohn is doing. You get $20 million. You get $18 million. Everybody is signing with the Mets, it would seem. Their payroll is so high, they will have the top payroll in baseball. Your dreams are coming true. Two things that we're going to talk about. One, what is the correlation between having the league's highest payroll and having a ring on your finger at the end of the year? Does that matter? Steve Cohn was very clear when he bought the team. Three to five years, we're getting a World Series. If I have to buy it, I have to buy it. If I have to buy every player, I'm going to buy every player. If I have to outspend. If they put in a Stephen Cohn tax in the collective bargaining agreement, we're going to surpass it. Doesn't matter. We're getting a World Series. So here we are, of course, in December, 12-12, and obviously the Mets are in last place right now and first place. It's true. They are. So how many teams who have the highest payroll win the World Series? What's the correlation? What would be your guess in the last 20 years of the teams with the highest payroll to win the World Series? Just give me a number. What would you say? Because you'd think that it happens all the time. Four times. That's it. Yankees had the highest payroll in 09 and won the World Series. Dodgers had the highest payroll in 20 and won the World Series. Yankees had the highest payroll in 2001 World Series. And the Red Sox had the highest payroll in 18 and won the World Series. That's it. Four times. 22 years. But this year... Maybe there will be a direct correlation because the gap between Steve Cohn's payroll and the league is so far greater. The payroll disparity today is so far greater than back in the early 2000s. The difference between the team with the highest payroll in 2003 
Marlins beat the Yankees in the World Series. The Marlins had, what did they have? The 15th highest payroll, maybe? And the Yankees had the highest payroll. Didn't matter in a six-game series. But during the offseason, there's a contract that is signed between an owner like Stephen Cohn and his fan base. It's a contract of expectations. When you buy the team and guarantee a World Series, when you are the richest owner and not the poorest, there's a contract. But that didn't always exist. When did that start happening? There have been billionaire owners of teams before who don't go out of control with their payroll. They have a payroll commensurate with the revenues of their team. They have a payroll commensurate with an operating business in a responsible manner. Stephen Cohen is not operating the Mets responsibly. They're horrific on a year-over-year -year basis from an operational standpoint. There is no revenue. I saw an article, Coca, that Aaron Judge, maybe it was a tweet, Aaron Judge at $40 million is a profitable signing for the Yankees because he will generate more than $40 million of revenue for the Yankees. That's not the question. Will he generate $40 million of incremental revenue? Absolutely not. So if there's no great correlation between highest payroll and winning a World Series, the argument for having the highest payroll still exists because you want to give yourself a better chance. And if you have a high payroll, the odds are you're going to play in October. Once you're in the October tournament, if balls fall the right way and you have some hot pitching, your injuries are not as significant as other teams, your depth is greater because in theory you have a higher payroll, you're giving yourself the best chance. Is that what fans want? Give me the best chance to win the World Series. And I would argue that's not what fans are satisfied with. As much as they should be, as frustrating as that is for a front office, fans are consequentialists when it comes to this. Give me the ring or give me death. That's all I care about. Does Steve Cohn get the credit from all Mets fans today because he is spending what he's spending? Or... Is he only matching their expectations, therefore not even getting incremental benefits? There certainly were no incremental benefits during the race to the division title last year with the Braves. If you talk to people around the league or people in New York and you went to City Field during September, people were shocked, both inside and outside the organization, at the lack of crowds. So what's the reason? Maybe what owners should do is manage expectations. Buy a team and say, hey, we are here to act responsibly. We want to give ourselves the best chance to win. But at the end of the day, it's just business. And then all of a sudden, you go full drunken sailor and you bring your payroll to $343 million and you say to your fan base, you know what? Screw it. I just wanted something for my fans and for the fans of New York. You guys deserve it. Get great PR out of it. And then when they don't win, say, no problem. We're going to fire somebody. We'll try again. And you do it again and again until you win a ring. But then guess what happens? Then fans want a second ring. So do owners. But fans want the second ring. It's a losing game. We sit in rooms and talk about this very concept multiple times having conversations about fans' expectations and the disappointment that 29 markets feel every year, definitionally. 
it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Some fans start that disappointment because they're out of the race in June. Some fans feel the disappointment when they lose in the wild card round, and one fan base feels it because they lose the World Series. But at the end, on November 1st or November 7th this past year, whatever the final day is, 29 fan bases are all thinking the same thing. Oh, man, that was so cool. We were so close to winning. Phillies fans are all jacked up. We were right there. Thank you, John Middleton. You said you'd spend stupid money, and you did, and we came close. We're good. We're going to go get a cheesesteak and a schmear. No. John Middleton goes out, and he signs Trey Turner, raises the payroll even more. Everyone's happy. Maybe not in November. The problem with what Steve Cohn is doing is that there is a risk that he is not measuring correctly. And the risk that he is taking right now is incurring the ire of more than 23 other owners. Now, let me be clear. 23 owners in Major League Baseball could force him to sell, but won't. You don't force an owner to sell because their payroll is too high. You force an owner to sell when they steal money from you. You force an owner to sell when they're racist, maybe misogynist, but not because they have the number one payroll. So that's not the risk. But the risk is that 23 owners can get together and change a bunch of rules that can really impact your wallet. As part of collective bargaining, they can change revenue sharing rules. Did you know that the Oakland A's, who get a ton of revenue sharing, if they don't have a new stadium deal done in the next two years or three years, they stop getting revenue sharing? And did you know the Oakland A's were not getting any revenue sharing for five years prior to this new CBA because owners felt like, hey, this is a big market and the fact that you can't get a stadium deal done, the fact that you can't generate enough revenue to actually pay into the system, screw you, we're not giving you money out of the system. And the recourse that John Fisher, owner of The Gap had, the recourse that he had was zero, zilch, none. Owners, when they approved Steve Cohn, felt that the price of the Mets franchise, the valuation of the Mets franchise at the $2.4 billion was sufficient and high enough to vote him in. From a competitive standpoint, there's not one NL East owner, not one owner of the other New York team, and not one owner, that's right, of the other 29 teams who said this is great. Because during the negotiation with Steve Cohn, when he's filling out all the papers, when he's submitting his budget to Major League Baseball for what he's going to do when he owns the Mets, which is approved by owners as part of the ownership change process, the ownership voting process. It's the same thing, right? When go back to the Marlins, when Bruce Sherman traded the players, everyone in baseball knew that Stanton was going to be on the open market because part of their plan is those players were going to be traded and the payroll was going to be taken down once Bruce Sherman bought the Marlins. That was all part of the plan. Everybody knew it. And when an owner sees that, 
it's the best of both worlds, right, with the Marlins. You get a huge price for the team, which helps the value of every other team. And you don't have to worry about that guy taking all the players because he's not as part of his takeover plan. When Steve Cohn takes the team, it has to be such a premium of what that franchise is worth that you're willing to not care that he is going to take your players away or change your ability to keep your own players because he's going to move the entire salary structure in the league up. But what Stephen Cohen has done this year was not contemplated and not part of the submitted budget when he bought the team. There was no indication that he would go so far above the other teams. The thought of him having a $343 million payroll, it was, it was the same thought as me being 6'5". Just not something that was discussed. When the Steve Cohn tax threshold was put in at $293 million, the view was that Steve Cohn would have a lack of incentive to surpass it by a huge amount of money. So you were giving the Mets a sort of salary cap while acknowledging the likelihood that they'd have the highest payroll. It did not occur to 10 teams that the luxury tax that he will have to pay this year would be higher than their payroll. And there's a chance that his luxury tax bill will be higher than the payroll of 10 teams in Major League Baseball. That is the exact thing that Bud Selig tried so hard as commissioner to avoid, which was having any team go into spring training without hope. If everything falls right, we're not projected to do well, but if everything falls right, we got a shot. Even tanking teams say that because of the nature of baseball, the nature of expanded playoffs. Hey, we don't plan on being good, but man, I mean, listen, if one of our zero plus players, one of our young players, we get some luck, lack of injuries, overperformance, we could be in there. We could be in the race until early September. That's the definition of hope. Not being eliminated, that was always the way I would look at it. You have succeeded in terms of giving hope to your franchise, to your city, to your fans, if you're playing meaningful games in September. There's a football coach in Miami, the guy named uh, Xavier McDaniel, and he said, uh, funny, not Xavier McDaniel, it is um, Mike McDaniel. Xavier McDaniel used to play for the Knicks. He was number 34, the X-Man. Mike McDaniel said recently, We are very excited to be playing meaningful games in December. That's the same football expression as baseball saying we want to play meaningful games in September. It means that we've been in the race and we are in the home stretch and we got a shot. So the thought is that if at least 28, but hopefully 30 teams can say that, then you get to whether or not expectations were met, meaning when do teams fall out of the race? Part of the benefit of expanded playoffs is in theory, more teams are in the race longer, generating that interest and that hope in more cities getting toward the number they want to get to, which is all 30. So the Mets come in and they just blow the doors off salaries. Do you realize that at about $345 million, 
that he may be paying an extra, call it $75 million in tax. I'm just doing rough math, right? To tell you that his payroll, including tax, which is not how we say payrolls, right? When we give you a payroll of a team, uh, there's several ways to do it. You can give the cash payroll. So if you ha- if you have a backloaded contract and you're paying a guy 10 million this year, but 30 million next year, that's the equivalent of 2020 because it's 40 million over two. That's 20 million per year in terms of your competitive tax, your luxury tax payroll. It's 2020, but for cash, it's 1030. And for an owner, hey, it's $40 million over two years, however it works. Think about that Bonilla. You know, Bonilla Day in New York with the Mets where Bonilla still gets a million bucks every year until he's 160 years old. If you spread out money, defer money out for later years, from that's cash. From a luxury tax standpoint, you take the number of years of the contract and you divide, you take the total money, divide it by the number of years of the contract, not the deferred payment years, the actual years that he's eligible to play. Even if he doesn't play, by the way. So when the Mets released, what's the number, uh, Coca? What, um, do you have this off the top of your head by chance? We didn't talk about a pregame, I'm very sorry. Is Robinson Cano one of the five highest paid Mets players this year? I would assume it's got to be close to that because while he is a forgotten person, he was released. The Mets are still responsible for his contract. And that is a money that is used both cash and it's part of their luxury tax bill, by the way. Okay. What do they owe him? 20 million bucks this year. My God. He will be the fifth highest. That was a good guess. Robinson Cano is your fifth highest player, and which is amazing on a team that has a $345 million payroll. Mets went out and signed Senga over the weekend. When you are a Japanese, we talked about the uh, Japanese position player named Yoshida and the contract he got when the Red Sox, Red Sox gave him $90 bucks. That sort of stocky, I think we may have talked about on Friday's show, he's the stocky... Uh, Um, left fielder who's going to play left field for the Red Sox. And there was a posting fee that the Red Sox had to pay Oryx, which is the team he played for in Japan. The Mets actually did not have to pay a posting fee for Senga. There are rules in Japan that if you have enough service time in Japan, and these are rules negotiated between the Japanese Professional League and Major League Baseball, and if you've got enough years of service, then you get to be a regular free agent. You can sign with anyone, and the team does not get the benefit. The Japanese team does not get the benefit of a signing bonus or a posting fee. So Senga comes in. He was a sought-after middle-of-the-rotation pitcher because pitching is so hard to come by. And the irony is that starting pitchers are becoming less and less important, and they're still getting more and more paid. Can't let him get three times through the lineup. Five and dive, way to go. That's 15 million bucks for you. We don't know what Senga is going to be. I guess he's replacing Bassett or Walker. Doesn't much matter if you're a Mets fan. You just know that you got him. I guess is that the expectation that you're now going to get every player? Are you going to wonder at any point the way Coca did that they haven't really improved their offense yet? Huh. We'll see what happens. Correlation. There is no correlation between having the highest payroll and winning the World Series. Will that change this year? I guess we'll have to find out. 
By the way, you'd think the Mets would be favored to win the World Series, right? With a payroll like that, if you're an owner, I was thinking about this. If you are Stephen Cohn and you have this payroll and you have a front office that can't even make you the favorite to win the World Series with spending this money, don't you look at them and say, man, maybe we've got a small problem. The Astros are five and a half to one. The Dodgers are seven to one. The Mets are eight to one. And then Yankees nine to one, which by the way, pisses off Hal Steinbrenner. Owners do look at that. Like where are we in the odds to win the World Series? You wanna be as high as possible. It's like power rankings, which owners will tell you they never look at and they always look at no matter which publication puts them out because they wanna know where they are in the power rankings. They pretend they don't. Baseball executives don't look at that because they could literally care less. No, no, they couldn't care less literally about power rankings. Yankees nine to one. Padres, Phillies, Braves, ten to one. I think Peter Seidler, the owner of the Padres, is annoyed. Like, I just did all that. I brought in Xander Bogarts, and I'm only ten to one. God, that's horrific. <laughs> what about when you sign a player? What happens? Do you look at the odds changing? We do that on CBS Sports HQ. Before this signing, like, do, do you look at that with uh, over-unders, right? In the NFL, people do that. <clears throat> Major League Baseball, what were your odds of winning the Super Bowl or the odds of winning the World Series? How did they change? That's just funny to me. In 2022, the Mets opened the season. They were 9-1 to one to win the World Series. So they've gone... They've increased their payroll by probably $100 million this year. <laughs> That's funny. And they're eight to one. Way to go. Correlation. Baseball is a problem. Owners are going to get pissed at Steve Cohen. I'll tell you that right now because they did not expect this. One question, if I were interviewing Steve Cohen on Nothing Personal, I would want to ask him, how sustainable is it? Are you willing to write checks in perpetuity? Or is this truly a five-year window where you promised that you would win a World Series in three to five years and you get the depreciation and the tax benefits these first five years and you knew when you bought the team that you secreted away an amount of money that you were willing to put in the payroll over five years? What happens year six? Because you may not think it's coming soon, but let me tell you something. Year six, it's going to be here tomorrow. You're going to keep willing to do that? In your hedge fund business, can you imagine if you had a department in your business? This is what I would say to Steve Cohen. You had a department that year after year lost money. Every year. At what point do you fire them? At what point do you shut them down and make them profitable? Force them to be profitable. Mark my words, eventually, even owners of the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Mets, no matter what team, no matter how rich, at some point, they say to themselves, we will not lose money anymore. This is stupid because we're still not winning. But don't worry, Mets fans. You still have year three, year four, and year five to win the World Series. Correlation. We were always jealous of the NBA because even during their lockouts, when they were having labor problems, and they did, it never really garnered the attention and vitriol of labor stoppages in Major League Baseball. We would always take it as a compliment, like we are a more popular sport or people love us more. They have a bigger emotional attachment to us. But the truth is, it was more anger. 
it was more exasperation. Like, this is a bunch of horse hockey that we have to sit in front of the media and answer all these questions from you about this labor stoppage. And you're all angry with us. Baseball has labor stoppages. Basketball has labor stoppages. Hockey has labor stoppages. Football does. That's just how it works. Ideally, you want to avoid it. And the best way to avoid it is to not even have a period of time where your collective bargain agreement between owners and players has expired. Because once a deal is expired, there is this immediate tension to do better, to win. That is the nature of competitive people. I want to win. Oh, you're gonna fight me? Now I really wanna win. You're gonna back down? I don't have to win by as much. Think about your own situations, very common. The NBA is in a position right now that is interesting. In their collective bargain agreement, they included the concept of an opt-out. An opt-out is when you're in the middle of an agreement, much like what players get now, you're in the middle of a long-term deal, and you feel as though you have outperformed your deal, and the market has moved in a way that if you were to be a free agent today versus two years ago when you signed the contract, you will get paid more money for today and tomorrow than under your current contract if you are a free agent, so you opt out. I've told you this and you know it. Players only opt out of their contracts when they know they've got more from somewhere else or their own team. They never opt out when they can't get more. So either way, the team loses when players have opt-outs. In collective bargaining, it's the same thing. It's a much harder calculation, by the way, of when you opt out because figuring out the economics of a collective bargaining agreement is way more complicated than saying, I make 20 million a year, this team will pay me $25 million a year, taxes are the same, that's 5 million extra dollars gross, I'm opting out and taking the five extra million dollars. Easy peasy. In a collective bargaining agreement, there are departments within Major League Baseball, just as there are departments within the NBA, and they are evaluating the NBA's collective bargaining agreement and where there are issues that have cost league owners more than they anticipated. The Players Association is doing the same study. Are there issues that have benefited us? Are there issues that we thought would benefit us and they haven't? The NBA has an opt-out in their CBA that they can use and the players can use. All you have to do is give notice that you are gonna opt out. And the opt out for their current collective bargaining agreement is the end of this coming season. The problem with an opt out is it brings you into immediate labor turmoil. So what the NBA has decided to do, which is the genius of having the opt out in the middle of the agreement, it pushes up the negotiation with the players. It pushes it up from the end of an agreement to the middle of an agreement. But the middle of this agreement is the end of the opt-out period. 
So the NBA is under some pressure right now. They are negotiating with the players, trying to get an extension of the current CBA. Their view is that this CBA is beneficial to players who are making tens of millions of dollars on NBA teams who stink because of a salary floor and money that has to be spent. There are things that benefit the owners. Hey, we can't overpay old players like in baseball because we're not allowed to. There are things that address the middle class that are called mid-level exemptions. It's pretty good for everybody. When something is pretty good for everybody, the tendency is let's keep it going. Let's stay in that space. Adam Silver has enough control over his owners that enough of them are happy enough with the current collective bargaining agreement that they would like to extend it. The mechanics are you meet with your owners and you say, here's what's happened with our CBA. What do you think? Let's try to get an extension. The owners then say to Adam Silver, well, I think it's been better for the players. I think they're going to want to extend more than we're going to want to extend. Therefore, let's go to them and ask them about the extension. However, let's get something for it. Let's make a trade. And the trade the owners in the NBA want to do is the we don't want Steve Cohn trade. They want to put in an upper spending limit to avoid a Steve Cohn. Who is Steve Cohn in the NBA? There is not one. I would argue there are three. You could say that Joe Sy with the Nets is a little much. I could say that LeCobe with the Warriors may be a little much. And certainly Steve Ballmer has the ability to be a little much over in the clip joint. So going to the players and saying, hey, we're ready for an extension of the CBA. However, we want to put in a hard cap. None of this bull crap where we hire five people, which is what they do in the NBA and the NFL. We're going to hire five people. We're going to have a department. It's not going to be lawyers who are leading an investigation into our own terrible behavior. It's going to be lawyers who specialize in like breaking the IRS code, like a tax attorney. No one hires a tax attorney to pay more taxes. You hire a tax attorney to pay fewer taxes, to figure out every possible loophole contained in a 3,000-page book. I don't want to read it. I'm going to pay you to read it and tell me what to do so I can give as few dollars as possible to the government in taxes. That's what tax lawyers are. Cap lawyers and cap departments, their whole job is to get around the cap. Their whole job is to maximize the cap. How do we get the most players, pay the most money that we can afford with indifference toward the fact that there is a salary cap? Those, those departments do not exist in baseball because the only salary cap in baseball is what an owner wants to spend. And all the CFO does is does the tax calculation, says, hey, here's your tax at this payroll. If you sign a guy for a dollar, by the way, you're signing for a dollar ninety. All right, that's easy. Don't need to have a department for that. But the NBA has all of these departments where the teams do, where teams are figuring out, hey, we've got a rich owner. We're willing to go all Steve Cohn on everybody. 
The NBA would like to say no, but it's really not the NBA Adam Silver. It's really not Steve Ballmer. It's the other owners who are saying this is not fair. We did not think the disparities would be this big. We thought if we're gonna have a floor and a cap, everyone's gonna be in the range. It'll be a very small band. It's not. Will it happen? That's the question. Will there be an extension? Wait to see is when I say something's gonna happen. If it does, we'll revisit it. We've got a bunch of them to revisit. We're gonna get to it at one show this week, Coke, I promise. We're gonna do a laundry list of catch-ups on wait to sees, including ones we get wrong. Let me give you a wait to see right now. The NBA and its players will find a way to get the CBA extended before either side opts out. The opt-out is at the end of this season, and I believe they will announce because they are negotiating now, they will announce an extension. Wait to see. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about White Lotus. And it's a Monday, NFL week. What was it? I'm blanking. Was it week 14 yesterday? I got to talk about Tom Brady. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. Hope everyone had a good weekend. It's good to see everybody who is at Moss Miami. Enjoy the opportunity to meet as many people as possible and say hello and thank everyone for your loyalty to Nothing Personal. Coca, many people asked for you. Hey, where's Coca? I said, they weren't gonna pay Coca to come. Not yet anyway. I've been looking forward to last night 
all weekend. Frankly, that's that's actually not true. I've been looking forward to last night for seven weeks. Last night was the season finale of White Lotus Season 2. I have a special affinity to White Lotus, not just because of the content and how good it is, but because the series creator, writer, and director is Mike White, who was a survivor player. He actually made it to the final tribal council. And now he is the it guy in Hollywood. Season one of White Lotus won a bunch of Emmys. Mike White won a bunch of Emmys. If you remember watching the Emmys, he kept going on stage at the end. When season two came out with an entirely different cast other than Jennifer Coolidge, who is Stifler's mom, obviously sophomore slump, sophomore jinx, that's a real thing. It is a major concern that writers have when you have a hit show in season one. If we did not start off with a three-season character arc, a three-season story arc, you are creating season two from thin air. And you're doing it with a higher budget and higher expectations coming off Emmy wins. Season two of White Lotus takes place in Sicily at a resort, which I looked up. It's an actual resort in Sicily. It's a four seasons resort. And if you wanna go there during the summer, 2000 euros a night for there just to get in, like for a small room. I did not look early enough to know what the prices were prior to, I didn't know about the place, but I would like to know what the White Lotus premium is, how many people wanna go there because the White Lotus was filmed there in season two. There are people who would do that. So Jennifer Coolidge comes back for season two. They bring in Aubrey Plaza, F. Murray Abraham, who was the Academy Award winning actor from Amadeus. He is now plays a grandfather, which is hard to imagine because for me, Amadeus, the movie seems like yesterday. This season was an incredibly sex-filled season. Tom, Tom Hollander, one of my faves from About Time, who plays the playwright in About Time, is in White Lotus. And I can't spoil the end. But what I can tell you is this, the pressure on Mike White to perform was significant and he outkicked the coverage. There were a few lazy moments of the season where you can tell there was a bigger budget. There were a few more Italian operatic, 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 Italian music singing, opera singing, a few more scenery shots that were done in a very artistic way that are cool to see, but you know it's a budget thing. The dialogue still was brilliantly written. And the purpose of the entire show is that in the first episode, you see someone die. And then for the rest of the season, you are trying to figure out who that person was. And the show ends with showing you the scene that it showed you at the beginning, but this time you know who's in the coffin. There is no one who would have guessed who was in the coffin in season one, but therefore when you know that you're gonna have misdirection, you spend the entire season two saying, oh, it's that person. Oh, it's this person. Oh, I'm, I'm wrong, it's gotta be that person. Then during the finale, you do it again. Minute 10, ah, 
this is the person. It's a little early in the final episode. Why would they show us right now who's going to die? Oh, it's that person. It wasn't this person. And that exercise can only be had with brilliant writing. Congratulations, Mike White. I tell everybody who I can to watch White Lotus. You don't need to watch season one in order to watch season two, but you need to watch season one if you want to be entertained. I can't spoil season two, but God, do I want to. It's brilliant. And the best part about the end of season two is there's going to be a season three because it's so good that it's going to get renewed and Mike White is going to find a way to do it all again. White Lotus, God, I'm going to miss it Sunday nights. So I didn't watch as much football as I would have liked yesterday. But I did watch highlights because then you can say you've watched it. If you watch the, here's a question for you. If you watch the Red Zone channel, do you say you watch that game? Like if you only see the plays that are shown to you on that channel, like the scoring opportunity plays or fantasy plays or big plays or cutting back and forth, getting dizzy to the point that you need some sort of patch behind your ear because you cannot believe what you're feeling. Do you then say, yeah, I watched every game? I actually say the opposite. I watch no games. That's what happens when you just watch highlights of Red Zone. To me, you watch no games. I was struck by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because I'm on them. Father Time will win the day against Tom Brady. That has been my hypothesis. Meanwhile, Tom Brady is fourth in passing yards this season which is easier to do when you're first in pass attempts. However, he's not passing for touchdowns. He's only 13th. His QB rating stinks, which is how you rate efficiency and success. He's 19th. The Buccaneers are below 500, but they're in first place. And if you win your division in the NFL, you get to not just make the playoffs, you get to host a playoff game. Do you think that leagues get together, owners and commissioner, and they talk about what happens when there's a crappy division? They do. And here's how the conversation goes. We are all willing, they, it's another dollar. I'm glad I'm not doing that fine thing where every time I say we, I have to put a dollar into the betting jar. Although, Coca, you'd get to bet on so many things. You'd, we'd have our own like special DraftKings thing where, hey, just bet $5 with the chance to win $700. You could bet $700 with a chance to win $700, except you'd be risking nothing because it would all come from the damn betting jar when I keep saying we and it's they. You'd think after five years I'd have it straight. Not quite. So what's discussed is we need to incentivize teams to win their division, whether it's baseball or football. And the way to incentivize it is that we want to give those teams an advantage in the playoffs. And the best advantage in football is a home game. In a one-and-done situation, you'd rather be at home. And football, every situation is a one-and-done game. Every game in the football playoffs is game seven. That's the brilliance of it. It's like the NCAA tournament where in basketball, college basketball, where every game is a game seven. Because even game sevens in baseball, they're getting a lot of attention. 
That's why the NFL playoffs are so amazing. There's something just viscerally more enjoyable when the loser is done, sort of like the knockout round in the World Cup, right? You're watching it with more excitement because it's not, oh, this gives them the lead in the group. They're going to be the runner-up of Group C that's going to play the winner of Group 4 in the knockout stage. Yeah, it's fun to watch, but get to the knockout stage, and you're like, hey, we're going to see despair. That's why we love Game 7s, right? We love, sorry, the binary aspect of winning or losing. We love the agony of defeat, right? The wide world of sports. The thrill of victory. The agony of defeat with that skier tumbling over himself. God, I'm aging myself, but Google it. It's amazing. The agony of defeat, for whatever reason, was always shown as a downhill skier toppling over himself and falling 400 feet down a mountain with skis and legs flying everywhere. We have such a, um, an amazing, horrible curiosity about accidents, don't we? Don't you feel guilty looking at that? The agony of defeat. Anyway, I digress. That was a digression. Getting back to why leagues say it's okay if a team below 500 wins a division, we're still going to give them the reward because the reality is in a division, whether you win it at seven and nine, but now there's 17 games, Coke, I have to do the math again. Whether you win it at seven and 10, whether you win it eight and nine, or whether you win it at 16 and one. An owner goes into a season with the intent of winning their division, with the goal of winning their division. That is all that they are legislating from the top in these leagues. Go in with that as your mindset. If you overperform your expectations, get rewarded. If you underperform your expectations, but it's relative because everyone else in your division does too, you get rewarded. But there is no way that owners were ever going to allow a second place team to host a playoff game. And the reason why, and we're not talking wild cards right now, we have to talk, we're talking about the advantage that a divisional winner has, right? We already know that if you are one of the top two teams in the conference, you'll get a buy. So the top two division winners, your reward is not just a home game, but a one fewer game. If you have the worst record of the division winners, you're still going to get a home game, but you're going to have to win an extra round. That was done purposefully, A, because of the math, but B, and as importantly, because then there is a difference in the reward for winning your division with a good record versus winning your division with a bad record. And that's as far as owners were willing to go in terms of incentivizing winning a division before a season starts. Nobody's complaining if the Braves win their division below 500. And here's another funny thing. There were years when the NFC East had a division like that or the AFC Central, the NFC Central. There were years in baseball where the division winner won 84 games. Well, that's a bunch of horse hockey. Division winners should win 100 games. It doesn't always work that way. And when you're making the playoff scenarios and the playoff brackets and figuring out who's playing who, how many game series you're going to have, how it's going to look, you are taking into account the reality that every year is what we used to say. Every year there's going to be a crappy division winner, but it's going to be different each season. 
It's not like the Buccaneers division has been crappy every year and the Buccaneers have snuck into the playoffs or someone in their division has snuck in with a below 500 record every single year. That's not the reality. That's why it's all okay. And it's going to keep going. Nothing personal pick of the day. It's not fair to lose on penalty kicks. Brazil lost to Croatia in the quarterfinals of the World Cup on Friday. I'm taking the loss on the pick of the day. And the reason I'm taking the loss is Brazil lost. But something about penalty kicks just doesn't seem fair that that's how it ends. I feel like it should end in the golden goal, right? You keep playing. Hey, hockey, they can play till three in the morning. You can go into five overtimes. Everybody's exhausted. They can barely skate, but you better score a goal. First goal wins. Anyway, we lost. France beat England, and that was amazing that Harry Kane missed a PK in regular time, not in penalty time, not past the stoppage time, the extra stoppage time. France still has a chance. We had them at plus money to repeat, and they still have a chance. They're making it to the semis, so we won that pick. I can't talk about yesterday's pick. I'm too angry. Dan Campbell, the coach of the Lions, comes out and says, I have no idea why we're favored. And I was like, I have no idea why you're favored either. That's why we took the Vikings plus two. And now I know why you're favored. Because you stink. You're playing a team that absolutely stinks. I'm so over the Minnesota Vikings and their ridiculously overbloated record that was based on fantasy, and I didn't want to believe it. Meanwhile, the Lions have won a bunch in a row like five out of six games or something there in the damn playoff hunt. Maybe going after people's knees matters. All right, tonight we got a game. Pats and Cardinals. It's amazing the Pats are giving one and a half to the Cardinals. The Cardinals with all of their signings and their expensive quarterback, Murray. The Pats have a chance to catch the Jets, and I'm taking Belichick. We're 144 and 121, and the pick of the day is Pats, one and a half over the Cards. Is there a correlation between my pick of the day and what actually happens? Maybe. 144 times there have been. We'll be back tomorrow. That is directly correlated to the truth. It's just business. This is nothing personal.